Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. Hey everybody, this is Mike Gunn, and today on Truth Be Told, we're going to be talking about something a little bit difficult today, um, something that will probably rub some people the wrong way and make some people angry. I really hope that I don't do that. I'm trying to approach this topic with um, careful consideration and um, critical thought, not just, um, I'm not doing this like a loose cannon, just trying to do this inflammatorily or to make anybody upset. I'm not trying to do that. Obviously the title of the episode is a little bit inflammatory, no pun intended there, but it is something that I think is worth talking about and we'll see why. This topic can actually seem a little bit blasphemous on the surface, but I'd like to ask that you bear with me in patience. Obviously, I don't believe that Jesus Christ should be in hell. I'm going to attempt to point out a logical inconsistency in a doctrine that so many people hold today that I'd like you to consider for yourself. So the topic for today is hell. And first, we're going to get our our definition straight of what hell we're talking about, because there is a wide range of beliefs in what hell is. Then we're going to discuss why the doctrine of hell is a problem for people, or rather why it's something we should discuss, because to some people it's just a very cut and dry thing. There's heaven, there's hell, and that's what happens when you die. One of those two. Um, I'm going to try and make the point that it's not as cut and dry for all people or all Christians, and we're going to discuss why that is. And then next, we're going to briefly look at what the Bible says about hell. And then lastly, we'll go over our main question for today, which is, why isn't Jesus in hell? And again, that is an inflammatory statement. I understand that. But it is um, thought carefully out and not meant to be something that uh, causes anybody to stumble. Obviously, I don't believe Jesus should be in hell. This is just um, a question to get us to start thinking critically about the doctrine. All right, so with that said, let's go ahead and get started. Today is going to be a pretty different kind of episode to what we've had so far, in that my main goal is just to get you to ask yourselves questions about all of this. I'm not attempting today to prove anything outrightly right or wrong, and I'm not trying to explain every single thing the Bible teaches on the topic. It's way too big for the time that we have, and I'm not even going to try to point out every flaw in every religion on this topic, I just want you to start asking some questions for yourself and to answer the one that I give you in the title to get your mind working and thinking critically on the traditional understanding of hell. And yes, I do want you to answer the question in the title for yourself as well. And by the end of that, uh, by the end of this episode, I I think you'll see why, because while it is just Yes, it's a title to catch your attention and everything, but it's also a valid question that we're going to be uh, looking into today. 
So, like I said, part one, we'll go through definitions. And a lot of, I can't, I don't have time to go through every single religion's um, definition of hell, but I have just pulled a few quotes from different um, websites and uh, church papers, things like that, to kind of get a, a, a baseline understanding of what we mean when we say hell. For example, the Catholic Catechism says, and this is a direct quote, it says, The teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell, where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he belongs. And that's the Catechism 1035. Um, in Amish belief system, which I know that's a strange one to go to, but I think they're overlooked quite often, actually. Um, in the Amish belief system, heaven and hell are real places. Heaven is the reward for those who believe in Christ and follow the church's rules. And hell awaits those who reject Christ as savior and live as they please. And that is from learnreligions.com. From patheos.com, uh, we can look at Protestantism. And there it says, hell is a place of torment as just punishment for sin. In recent times, and this, this is pretty important and will be more important later. It says, in recent times, a significant split has emerged between the more, the more conservative and more liberal wings of many Protestant denominations. Conservatives maintain their belief in an afterlife spent in a literal place, either heaven or hell. So there is, even amongst Protestants, which obviously that is a big group of people, there's a difference in belief, and a lot of Protestants are having a hard time holding on to that belief in a literal place of hell. And then lastly, I know this is kind of a lot, kind of monotonous, but just bear with me. Um, this is about Baptists, and this is from Bible Baptist Publications. So this is a Baptist, uh, a member of the Baptist Church um, discussing their belief in hell. And this isn't so much a belief in what hell is as much as how hell happens or how people go to hell. And I, I think it's very profound. It says, after all, if hell is real, and I certainly believe it is, then souls are dying and going there every second. Yes, every second. You can do your own math, but if you figure the world death rate into Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, which is the narrow gate scripture, you will not get a pleasant scripture, this person says. Conservatively speaking, every time you've read a line on this page, at least one more person has dropped into hell fire for eternity. So that is, that's a, a pretty harsh statement. And I, I don't want to say that because it's harsh and difficult to accept, that means that it's false. There are a lot of things in the Bible that we have to come to terms with. Repentance, for example, is hard for humans to do. That doesn't make it wrong doctrine. So I, I don't want to make the case that just because that's a harsh statement, it means it's wrong, but it's still something to consider, especially with our, our next part on why this topic is a problem for people. So the summation um, or the, the definition we're going to be working with today, and I think most uh, modern Christians would agree with this definition of hell or their belief in hell is that hell is a place of torment as a punishment for sinners who don't accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The understanding amongst Christians is that Christ paid the penalty for sin 
And if you don't accept that payment, then you pay it by being sent to hell. And we're going to come back to this summation towards the end of the episode. So keep it in mind, and I will uh, try and remember to repeat it as well. But for our sake today, I have to pick one definition. And so that's kind of going to be the, the one that we operate under. So part two, why is this topic a problem? And I'm not asking why is the definition of hell a problem, though I do believe that it is. I'm asking why do people have a problem with the idea of hell and why is this important enough to discuss? And I think we can break this into two parts. One is that the eternal afterlife is of just infinite importance to those who believe there is one because we all want to know what's coming. The second one I think is also very important, and that is that people are actually leaving Christianity because they can't reconcile their belief in hell with a loving God. So, and some people aren't leaving Christianity. Some people are just either rejecting the belief in hell or rejecting the belief that God is all loving, but they can't seem to reconcile those. So something has to go. It's either belief in hell, belief in a loving God, or them from the church. And I'm not saying that people leaving the church is grounds to say that that means um, the thing that's being taught is wrong, whatever the subject might be, especially because Christ had difficult sayings that caused people to leave all the time. And he did that on purpose, actually. So just because a saying is difficult and people leave because of it doesn't make the saying wrong in and of itself. But I think whenever people do leave the faith, it's something to pay attention to because at the very most, we need to say that we should understand why these people are leaving and then try and combat that in some way, not to uh, water down the gospel not to water down your preaching at all on truth, but just to say, why are people leaving and to understand why people are leaving to try and do something about that. Or at most you could be looking at something where you're not actually teaching the truth when you thought you were because people will leave truth. If the people are searching for truth and they don't believe they're getting it, so they leave, that might be something to look at as well. So again, I'm not making the point that any one person is doing something wrong. All I'm doing in this section is just trying to show you that it is an important topic to discuss because people do have a problem with it. Back to that patheos.com website on Protestantism, it said that more liberal Protestants tend to downplay hell, often because the image of God torturing people for eternity, even if those people are sinners, is not easy to square with their idea of a loving God. Nor is it easy to square the idea of a just God with one who casts people into hell because as the result of fortune for which they are not responsible or maybe misfortune, they have not lived in a place where the gospel of Jesus was preached. Far more Americans say that they believe in heaven in recent surveys than say they believe in hell. So yeah, this is, this is pretty significant. Protestants make up a huge portion of modern Christianity and they're clearly having a difficult time with it. So we should look at it. Um, people have a difficult time realizing that people constantly are going to hell in this understanding of what hell is. They're saying people go to hell all the time because people are sinners and they're unrepentant or they haven't heard Christ. And that is difficult to understand. That's difficult to reconcile with a belief in a loving God. And they ask questions like, well, what about those Christians that never knew Christ that either died before Christ was even alive 
or died in a place where Christ wasn't preached. They, they had no idea that Christ had a plan for mankind's salvation, and now they just get to burn for eternity. Why, why, why would that happen? Because if God is all-powerful and all-loving and all-merciful and is working all things for good, why would he then, out of all the people who have ever lived, only save or grant or offer salvation to a minority of the people that have ever existed? I mean, why not just make less people bound for hell? That It just, it just doesn't really compute. And I've heard answers to this. Um, I've heard... Even William Lane Craig, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase him, it's it's not a perfect rendition of what he said, but he kind of explained that nature declares God's glory. So people are judged by their perception that God exists and how well they live their life, even through seeing evidence of him in nature. And I think it was William Lane Craig and I think Ravi Zacharias have said that before. The problem is, this is an opinion. You know, this, these are loosely braided scriptures that people are seeing in some things meant to serve as a theory for how God is gracious to those who have never heard in Christ or heard of Christ. But this in itself, the fact that we're presenting opinions on what will probably happen to those people should tell you that there's an inconsistency in the doctrine of all of those people burning forever in hellfire with the idea of a loving and merciful God. Because it's hard enough for Christians to stay the path, let alone people with negative influences from their society or culture, and then only for them to have nature proclaiming God, um, doesn't really seem like there would be much chance that, you know, they would um, walk a right path. So we need an answer. Um, because there, like I said, just the fact that there are people coming up with solutions to this difficult question, and these are intelligent, thoughtful people coming up with quite with uh, answers to this question shows us that we do need one. So it's a problem that need answered this reconciliation between the doctrine of hell and a loving God, if we can, and, and this is why we need to discuss it, we need to question it. And we need to think logically about what the Bible teaches. So again, I hope, I hope I haven't thrown you too far off. That section is literally only to show you that this is important. This is something that needs discussed. So now we're going to move on to part three, and that is what does the Bible say about hell? Well, like I mentioned before, hell is one of those ideas that isn't often questioned. We um, understand certain things about the Bible, and then we read them into scripture rather than finding them for ourselves. Hell is an idea that's been around for a long time and is pretty pivotal to a lot of um, different religions or different uh, sects of Christianity. And so we take that and when we read the Bible, we, we kind of can read it into the Bible. And we do this with a lot of things. It's really hard to get our preconceived notions out. And in some ways, you know, we see good versus bad or reward versus punishment. And when we're presented with the idea of heaven and hell, it kind of fits these tropes. So we don't question it much. Very rarely, actually, would I say people go deeper into understanding why that is common belief, or actually what biblical factors led to that belief. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through them. And there are four different words um, translated hell, they're kind of thrown under the same English word that has all these connotations attached to it, hell. And the four words are Sheol, Tartaru, Gehenna, 
and Hades. And some of these you, you probably heard of, um, depending on your, your level of study. I'm going to say them again, Sheol, Tartaru, Gehenna, and Hades. And we're going to go through these four words and look at examples in the Bible. And we're going to see what the Bible actually is teaching us through these verses. Because like I said, these four words often get put under the same English word, hell, that is full of all of these different connotations of eternal punishment and um, torturous fire. And that's kind of the connotation. So anytime you read through these scriptures, it's just going to say hell. And your mind is going to go to your belief in what hell is. And um, I think that's that's a little bit irresponsible. Actually, a lot of modern translations now are actually just keeping uh, the Greek or the Hebrew word because they have all of these different levels of meaning, not just the English word hell. So a lot of modern translations are just kind of dispatching with the word hell and instead putting these Greek or Hebrew words instead. So the first two we're going to go through, we're going to actually cover two together because they're rough equivalents of each other. And that is Hades and Sheol. And they're better translated. I'll just start with kind of the conclusion first. They're better translated the grave or the afterlife. And my reasoning for that is, is this. David himself says that God will be with him even in Sheol. So even in hell, God will be with David, which is weird for a number of reasons. Why will David be in hell? especially when God says that David will be in his kingdom. It doesn't make sense for him to be in eternal hellfire if he will also be in the kingdom. Those things don't really equate. And it's also strange that God will be with him because if hell is the absence of God, which some believe that's all it is, right? Some believe that hell is um, not eternal fiery torment, but that the absence from God that you're experiencing puts you in torment. And so even if that were true, how is God in hell with David? It doesn't really make sense. And some believe that Christ went to hell when it says that he descended to Hades after death, which again is weird because if hell is the absence of God and Christ is God, then how did he go there? That doesn't really make sense. To quote uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of the most well-known commentators and expositors and preachers, uh, from the 1800s, he just an excellent speaker. If if um, you ever get a chance to listen to some of his sermons or read some of his commentary, most of it is really, really great. So this is not against Charles Spurgeon. It just is to say that um, even his statements on hell can't actually be reconciled with this idea. So in Sermon 329, Christ's first and last subject, Spurgeon on hell says, it is the place where hope and peace can never come. But if that's true, and Christ went there, or God was with David in Sheol, in hell, then how do we reconcile these things? Because you have to take the Bible line upon line, precept upon precept. And so, if Christ and God, the Father, are the embodiment of things like peace and hope, then how could God be with David in hell, and how could Christ descend to hell? It just doesn't really make sense. So how do we translate then Sheol or Hades? Well, I think Revelation 6 verse 8 gives us kind of a hint. Um, and there are a lot of scriptures you could go to to kind of look at this idea that Hades or Sheol mean the grave. And I think a lot of modern scholars have actually already gone this direction with these two words. 
Revelation 6, 8 talks about death and Hades, and it says that authority was given to them to kill. It doesn't say anything about torment. It doesn't say anything about fire. It just says that uh, this is a prophetic set of scripture where there are all the horses of the apocalypse and on one of the horses is death and Hades is behind death. And it says authority was given to them to kill, but it doesn't talk about torment. So I think it makes sense if authority was given to death and Hades to kill, then it makes more sense to call Hades or Sheol the grave or the afterlife or what happens after death. I think this makes a lot more sense. Okay, the next word we're gonna look at is Tartaru or Tartarus. And there are so many definitions all over the internet saying that this is the deepest, darkest, and most terrifying part of hell. So it's definitely something we wanna pay attention to if we are reading through the Bible and we see the word hell, it might be Tartarus, which is different than Hades or Sheol and definitely different than Gehenna as well. So this is its own Greek word, but again, only translated into English as hell. So when you're reading it, um, you're only gonna see hell and that's gonna fill your mind with these ideas of what hell is. But the thing about this is, even if this is true, that this Tartaru or Tartarus is the deepest, darkest, and most terrifying part of hell, it is only ever used to describe a place of restraint or imprisonment. So no, it doesn't say fiery torment. It doesn't say um, eternal hell fire. It doesn't say anything like that. It's only used as a place of restraint or imprisonment. And it's only used for demonic beings, never humans. So no, nowhere in the Bible do you find Tartaru um, pairing with human judgment or an eternal torturing of sinners. It just isn't in the Bible. So you're going to see hell in scripture and it could be translated Tartaru or Tartarus. And you might go ahead and think, well, that's the place where sinners go when they die, if they don't get saved by Christ. And if you think that, but you're actually reading Tartarus, then you're wrong because Tartarus or Tartaru, again, is never used in conjunction with human judgment. It's only used for demons and it's only used to reference a place of restraint or imprisonment, not eternal torture. So I hate to go through that one so quickly because I know on the last one we went to different scriptures and we bounced around a lot and um, really delved in deeper. But on Tartarus or Tartaru, I don't think we actually need to because even if this is an eternal place of torment, even if there is fire that burns forever and ever and ever, even if it is a place of um, conscious horror, it has no reference to human beings going through that in Tartarus or in Tartaru. So we're just going to kind of move on through that one. Not because I'm afraid to answer more questions about it. It's just because it really is one of the easiest to just dismiss. The last one though, the last word we're going to look at, Gehenna. This one is more often translated hell and it contains the most scripture pointed to when discussing an eternal place of fiery judgment. So when people want to perpetuate the doctrine of hell, they go to, often the places that they go to are scriptures that are translated hell, where the word is Gehenna. The problem is that none of these scriptures, not a single one, and you, you can look it up. I, I would love for you to look it up in the Bible. That means you're just in your Bible reading more, but none of these describe eternal torment. Instead, they're 
all in reference to destruction. And yes, sometimes that is destruction by fire, but it never has to do with torment eternally, just destruction. So you have to start to question, well, if Hades and Sheol don't reference hell, or at least hell like we understand it to be, and Tartarus doesn't reference hell as we understand it to be, as this place of eternal fiery judgment, it must be Gehenna. But why is this eternal place of fiery judgment not what we think it is? Why, why instead do we see a place of destruction, not eternal misery? This just doesn't make sense. So um, the few places that people really, really do latch onto are in Mark 9, 43. And that is translated Gehenna, but also Luke 16 Verses 19 to 31 is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. But even then the word is Hades. But we're still going to go through both of them. But first I want to go through um, Mark 9 verse 43 and just, just wrap up this Gehenna one real quick. So Mark 9 verse, verse 47. And there, there's a couple of these. Um, if this causes you to stumble, get rid of it because dot dot dot. And it kind of follows a pattern. But we're just going to look at one, and that's Mark 9, verse 47, and I'll be reading it from the ESV, um, not for any particular reason. I've just been reading that one lately, and I enjoy it. So the ESV, it says, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And that word hell there, again, is Gehenna. And I think it's interesting that it's comparing hell with the kingdom of God. So that makes sense to us, right? Like you have the kingdom of God on one side, you have hell on the other. But I always just like to ask myself, well, what is the kingdom of God? It is eternal life. So what is the opposite of the kingdom of God? It would be eternal death. It doesn't really fit actually, even in our um, desire for things to be so poetic, it doesn't fit that it would be eternal torment because that is not the opposite of eternal life. So the kingdom of God is eternal life and it pairs hell with the kingdom of God as its antithesis. And so I think it stands to reason just even poetically, which again is not a great reason on its own, but compounded, I think it makes sense that the opposite of eternal life would be just eternal death. And we do have a lot of biblical uh, references to this as well. It's not just poetic. For example, John 3.16, which is a very popular verse. Everyone's heard of this one. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that's, the again, the contrast between perishing or death and eternal life. So it's not torment. It's not eternal life in misery. It's death paired with eternal life as antitheses of each other. Then in John 5 verse 24, it says, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So again, it outlines two options for what can happen, death and life. Even in verses where it might lean more towards something um, that seems like hell, I think it is only borne out that we are adding into scripture what we already preconceive about it. So Matthew 25, 46, for example, it says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, 
but the righteous to eternal life. So you could look and say, see, it says eternal punishment. That sounds like hell to me. But punishment is not the same as punishing. Punishment could just as easily be eternal death as it could be eternal hell. So without any more evidence for an eternally burning hellfire, I think it's hard to um, put that on this scripture. Rather, I would say with every other verse that talks about the two options that could happen to a person when they die, um, death and the option of eternal life or the gift of eternal life seem to be the two options outlined in the Bible. So Mark, uh, let's keep going. Mark 9 verse 48 in the ESV, it says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is where people go and they say, see, this is what I was talking about. The fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Well, first of all, this, this, this isn't as, um, easy to just say, see, this is a place of eternal torment. It actually doesn't say that. Um, I think this is something again, that people can read into. It does say the worm doesn't die. It does say the fire isn't quenched, but it does not say the torment lasts eternally. This is something that we're reading into it because we think we can compound all of these scriptures that say hell and put them together into one eternally burning fire as a place of judgment for humans. But we haven't seen that in the other three words. So to only get it from this scripture and say, well, see, this is a fire that doesn't go out and a, a worm or a maggot that doesn't die. That sounds like torture to me. Well, it, it would be torture if the person were conscious for that eternally, but it doesn't actually mention that. We just are reading that into it because of our perception of what hell is or what our overall definition was in the beginning. And also when it says the fire is not quenched, this is not to say that the fire never goes out. It, it literally means that the fire is not put out. So it does its job fully. The body is burned, the person is burned fully. And the worm uh, or the maggot does not die, again, doesn't mean that a person is experiencing decomposition forever and ever and ever, which again is not even a part of our understanding of what hell is in the modern sense of the word. So if it's eternal torment and fire, why does it even mention decomposition with maggots and worms? That just doesn't really fit. If you decompose, then what is there left of you to eternally be burned? It just doesn't really fit. So I think again, Mark 948 is a scripture or 947 and 48 is a scripture that we read our understanding of hell into the verse. And like I said before, I'm not trying to prove or disprove anything to you today. I'm just trying to get you to start asking questions um, about this topic, as well as start to read the Bible for what the Bible says and not what we've previously believed that it said. And I think that's, that's a fair thing to say. I, I know it might be hard uh, to hear some of this because it's, it's, you know, you think, well, I believe in the doctrine of hell. I believe that when you die, if you are unpenitent and you haven't been saved, then you go to hell and you're burned there for eternity. I have believed that, you know, if, if you, you say you believe that forever, well, that's hard to undo, first of all. And I understand why you would think, well, that's exactly what Satan would want you to think is that there is no hell. I've thought the exact same thing about people that say, well, Satan isn't an actual being. 
I've heard Christians tell me that Satan is not a being. He is a collective of just evil um, demons or forces or spirits, but Satan isn't actually real. And I, as soon as I heard that, I thought, man, that is exactly what Satan would want you to think. Exactly what Satan would want you to think. But we can't really do this with the idea of hell because, first of all, Satan is not in charge of hell like modern culture would have you believe. Most serious Christians understand that Satan is not the god of hell or anything like that. Satan is not any sort of god at all besides the god of this world, and that's because the world has chosen him to follow. But that does not make him a god. He is nothing more than a fallen angel. And you might say, well, why does this even matter? Uh, it doesn't It doesn't seem to make any difference to me whether Satan is a god or not or anything like that. But I would say it does because if Satan is not this god of the underworld like pop culture would have us believe sometimes, it shows that if hell is real, he's got nothing to gain by us going there. Yes, he has something to gain by us losing our reward, but the end punishment, he has no say over, he has no control over, and so he has no stake in that game. I would say, however, if I'm correct in my assumption that the doctrine of hell has been um, read into scripture and isn't as accurate as we would typically be led to believe, I would say that is something that Satan would love to happen. He would love to introduce a false doctrine into the Bible that we just kind of read into scripture. That, that sounds like something Satan would want to do. So that's the only reason I bring that up. So we can't say that, well, Satan wants you to not believe in hell. But also, we're not talking about getting rid of all penalty for sin or being unpenitent or not having Christ's sacrifice rest on you. We're not, we're not talking about that. All we're talking about is the doctrine of an eternal burning hellfire that burns people in misery and torment for the rest of eternity. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about getting rid of all punishment. All I'm trying to do is look at what the Bible says about hell and contend the fact that maybe it's not quite as cut and dry as we've always heard that heard that it was. And that's especially based upon the four Hebrew and Greek words often translated hell, as well as different scriptures where the Bible talks about um, what happens after you die or what the two outcomes for human beings could be. I think as a compounding case, this really starts to make a lot of sense. Let's go to at least one more example, and this is back to the word Hades. And I know we've already covered Hades, but this story in particular is often used to support the idea of an ever-burning hellfire. And it's a parable that Jesus Christ outlines in Luke uh, chapter 16. Luke 16, verse 19 to 31. Again, the word here is Hades, not Gehenna. So we're kind of past Gehenna because the one verse people really go to um, when it says Gehenna is not actually talking about a place of eternal torture, but a place of destruction. And I think that's that's borne out in the scripture there. So back to Hades, just because, not because I don't think we've um, already shown that Hades or Sheol is the grave, but because this parable is often another one, another very popular one that people go to, to say, see, this is what happens after you die. So Luke 16, verse 19, and... 
I don't know if we'll read the whole thing. It's 19 to 31, which is quite a lot of scripture, and it's a pretty popular story, but um, I guess I'll just kind of go through the um, the brief outline. Basically, in verse 19, there's a rich man, and in verse 20, there's a beggar named Lazarus. And in this, the poor man or the beggar has a really rough life, a really difficult life, while the rich man has an excellent life. In verse 22, I will read this. It says, The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. Verse 25, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Verse 26, and besides all this between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And it keeps on going, um, more discourse between uh, the the rich man that is now in Hades and the poor, and the um, and basically Abraham and it says then I beg you my father send Lazarus to my family so he wants to save his family from the torment that he has and Abraham replied they have Moses and the prophets let them listen to them and Lazarus said no father Abraham he said but if someone from the dead goes to them they will repent basically they need a miracle and then then they'll see the truth of this and thirty one. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So, pretty compelling, right? It does say that this rich man who lived this life um, not caring about the poor man died and went to Hades, where he was in torment. It definitely does say that. However, I'd like to point out that this is a parable. This is a story told by Jesus Christ meant to illustrate a point. It is not meant to be taken literally, or all parts of all parables are not meant to be taken literally. There is allegory and metaphor and comparison and hyperbole all throughout parables. And um, people do this often. It's actually a, a critic's job typically to go through parables and say, see, the Bible doesn't or isn't reliable because this part of this parable says something that is um, slightly untrue or not narrative or not factual. But we as Christians should not be the people to go in and nitpick at parables and say, see, every piece of every parable is meant to be taken literally or factually. So that's kind of the basis for how you should begin to read this. But additionally, you need to ask, what is the story that Christ is trying to tell here? And to do that, you have to look at the audience. He's talking to Pharisees. And actually, in um, just a few verses before this, I think it's verse, I think it's verse 14. Let me see here. I'm pretty sure it's verse 14 where um, Jesus Christ, first he tells a parable. Yeah, verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. And this is in reference to the, the parable he told just before this one. 
And in verse 15, he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So this is, this is the message that he's trying to get the Pharisees to understand. And he does that by continuing on with the story of the rich man and Lazarus to say that just because you are this rich man in this life does not mean things work out well for you in the end. Additionally, a lot of scholars will look at this parable in particular and notice it has elements to it uh, that kind of lend itself to not being a parable that Christ created himself, but maybe a popular story that would have been told at the time and probably by rabbis, but it's a very Greek-centric culture here with a different understanding of um, the afterlife, the underworld, things like that. So it would have been a very popular story in this Greek-centric culture that rabbis would tell to illustrate points and depending on when you told the story or what you emphasized in the story or how exactly you told the story with your own little twist would depend on what message you were trying to teach. So I think all of this um, kind of kind of needs to be taken into consideration when we're looking at this parable and trying to draw things out of it because very few of the other parables would we take so literally as we do this one to grab whole doctrines out of. So if our entire doctrine of hell is coming straight from this one parable, I think um, maybe we're on shaky ground because we wouldn't do that for other doctrines and other parables. And I don't think we should do that for this one either, especially when we've already seen so many verses that contradict the idea of this um, being an accurate doctrine. I'd like to read um, a section from the Forerunner commentary, which I thought was really, really good on this section of scripture. It's, it's a little bit long, but I, I hope that it's beneficial to you. It says, Jesus does not say the rich man is taken immediately to an eternally burning hell. He says the rich man dies and is buried. People are buried in a grave and covered with earth. Hades in verse 23 is the Greek word for grave. The King James Version generically translates Hades into hell, as it also does the Greek word Tartarus, which we talked about um, a little bit earlier, the present condition of darkness and restraint of the fallen angels or demons, and Gehenna, a place at the bottom of a high ledge at the south end of Jerusalem where garbage and dead bodies were dumped and burned. We didn't get into that because while I, I do personally believe that, a lot of scholars um, refute that teaching that Gehenna was... This, um, this place where dead bodies were dumped, they, they do recognize it was a place. They do recognize that garbage was burned there. So I think it's reasonable to say that it was a common reference of the time, this Gehenna. But um, simply for the fact that I know people try and refute it, I tried to stick to things that were a little bit more middle of the road. Um, continuing on, other Bible translations correctly distinguish the difference or the different meaning in these words, the rich man went to the same kind of place Jesus did when he died, hell or Hades, depending on if you're reading uh, King James Version or New King James Version. But the Father did not leave him there or leave Christ there. And that's um, shown in Acts 2, verse 31 and 32. It says, He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resur resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witness. So I think that's a, a pretty good um, commentary on this section of scripture. It's pretty clear that this rich man, again, in this story, this uh, poetic story meant to tell a point, 
this rich man dies and is buried and is decomposed and the rest is a story you know otherwise you could say that people in heaven and hell just kind of talk back and forth all the time which that doesn't really make sense either um so there, there's a lot there's a lot to that verse that i think um gets taken very very literally when really it wasn't even the type of message that christ was trying to give to um, the pharisees of the time or, or also his disciples and the people who were listening as well just wasn't what christ was talking about so here we have gone through four different words often translated hell gehenna tartarus or tartaru hades and sheol and i really think in this uh, in all four of these words it's really really hard to pull out what most christians have defined as hell out of these four words i think it's really really difficult um Actually, I think the only way it can be done is by reading into scripture or doing a little bit of eisegesis, which is frowned upon. But having said that, if you still are very, very confident in your belief in what hell is, that's okay. All, all I've asked you to do is to bear with me, to listen to what I have to say, and also to question um, what might be a preconceived notion from you. So from this section, my goal is not to get you to automatically reject whatever you've believed previously. Honestly, if you've believed it previously, I hope that you study further and come to a conclusion on your own. I don't want to reach a conclusion on this for you. I am only trying to get you to start to see what the Bible says about it so that you can think critically and then ask yourselves questions that will lead you to proper conclusions. So if that conclusion for you is an eternal burning hellfire, I believe that you're wrong. But really the point here is for you to think critically about it, to come to the proper conclusion. And I think um, just going through these four words for what hell is, or hell is often translated as, really, really does a lot for that. But I think the main point today will be in answering the question that I have for you in the title. And that is, if there is this eternally burning hellfire meant to torment those who are under the penalty of sin forever, for eternity, then why isn't Jesus Christ in hell? I'm going to refer you back to our summation or our overall definition of how we defined hell. And that is, hell is a place of torment as a punishment for sinners who don't accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The understanding amongst Christians is that Christ paid the penalty for sin, and if you don't accept that payment, then you pay it by being sent to hell. If this is true, then I'm going to submit to you that Christ should be in hell. Now, I don't believe that Christ should be in hell, obviously, but I also don't believe that we can affirm this as true. And here's why. The penalty for sin is not eternal hellfire. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is everlasting life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this goes back to that Mark, uh, that section in Mark where we talked about the, the opposites. The kingdom of God being paired in opposition with hell, but we already have defined hell then as death. And this makes sense. The opposite of life or the kingdom of God is death, not eternal life in misery. It just doesn't make sense. So if the wages for sin or the wages of sin is death, 
Why, then, is hell in our mind, especially when hell in so many instances is translated death, afterlife, destruction, etc., why do we continue to perpetuate this idea that hell is an eternally burning hellfire? And if hell is an eternally burning hellfire, and that is the penalty for sin, we would have to say that Christ, when he paid that penalty for sin, went to hell for eternity. Because the penalty in the understanding of what hell is for a sinner is not to go to hell for a momentary time. It's not to be burned and then rise to heaven after that. It is to eternally burn. The penalty is to eternally live in torment. If that is the true penalty for sin, and Christ paid the penalty for sin, then under that understanding, Christ would have to be in hell. So, in order to perpetuate the doctrine of hell as an eternally burning fire, where sinners go who are unsaved by Christ to be in torment forever, in order to perpetuate that doctrine, we not only have to reconcile that with our idea of a loving God who would send people there who have never even once heard the name of Jesus Christ, let alone the gospel that he preached, we also have to reconcile it with the fact that the penalty for sin is death, not eternally burning hellfire. And if we can't reconcile those things, then we cannot continue to preach hell as we have in the past. So if you are someone who has understood that hell is an eternally burning hellfire where you will be in torment forever if you don't repent of your sins, I really hope that this has gotten you to question some things. I really hope this has gotten you to desire to look more into the Bible on what it says, because we cannot keep these ideas together. We cannot keep the idea that hell is a place where God sends sinners while we also preach a loving God. And we cannot continue to preach that Christ paid the penalty for sin if we believe that penalty for sin is an eternally burning hellfire, unless we also say that Christ is in hell right now. And there are plenty of scriptures that prove that he's absolutely not. He's alive and he's living right now beside God the Father and in all of us who truly believe in him. I really appreciate you guys listening today. I know this was a touchy subject. I know this is one that might make people a little bit angry. I really hope not. I hope that uh, you listen to this uh, podcast with some, some grace for me and for this teaching. I know it is not mainstream or the popular belief, but when you think critically and when you analyze the text of scripture, I really do think that this is the conclusion that you come to on the understanding of hell. So continue to read your Bibles, continue to think critically, and continue to tune in. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all of you who are listening. Have a great day.